Well, we continue our series in the Gospel of Mark. This is going to take us on through until Easter. And I trust that as we go through this and I skip some portions of Scripture, you'll go back and read up on them and hopefully be caught up in a way or be ready for the next Sunday too. Like I mentioned, I'm having a difficult time trying to condense down a number of chapters in the Sundays that we have until Easter. And uh, so working at that, we might might have to condense a couple chapters in one and and uh, we'll, we'll see how that works. But let me give you some highlights from chapter three that we're going to be looking at because I won't be preaching on all of the chapter, just a portion of it, as you see in your bulletin there. But uh, let me just... Uh, 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 show you highlights of this chapter, verses 1 through 6. The first six verses there, we see that Jesus is, is, heals a man's shriveled hand on the Sabbath. And that's like, oh, you're not supposed to do work. We learned about that, right? Not supposed to do work. Their Pharisees didn't like that. Teachers of the law did not like that. And when Jesus did that, uh, the Pharisees began to plan how to kill Jesus. That was the beginning point right there. It was ju- that was just too much. We need to figure out how to get rid of this guy. So that was the beginning of, of all that. And then in verses 7 through 12, which we'll be visiting today, uh, large crowds were following Jesus. They were getting healing. Evil spirits were being, were being uh, cast out. And, and those evil spirits also, too, were crying out uh, to, to everyone out there, claiming that uh, Jesus was the Son of God. But Jesus told them, not to tell who he was. So it's incredible to think about that, how Jesus had authority over those demons as well. And then in verses 13 through 19, which we're going to be looking at as well today, he, uh, Jesus appoints the, the 12 apostles, and uh, this will all come together in the message. Then after this, in verses 20 through 30, we see how Jesus uh, accuses the, the teachers of the law of uh, well, excuse me, he's accused by the teachers of the law of using Satan's power to do all that he does. You know, this is by Satan that he is able to heal people. And everything. So they couldn't refute what he was doing. They, they were miracles. It was happening. So they tried to undermine all that by saying, well, this isn't of God. And then Jesus uh, responded by saying, well, then how can Satan drive out Satan? And that doesn't make any sense. And so he goes on explaining that and talking to them about that. And then in verses 31 through 35, Jesus' mother and, and brother and sister are there uh, waiting for him, and, and sends, they send someone in to let him know that they're there. And Jesus' response is, kind of, if you've read that portion of Scripture before, Jesus' response is kind of like, whoa, okay, Jesus, that's your mom. Come on. You know, but he, he's saying, my mother and my brother and my sister, those are those who do my Father's will and obey and, and so there's kind of a, a little tension there going on. But uh, basically what he's trying to express there, too, is that re- the relationships are, are spiritual family. And the relationships are, are ultimately more important and longer lasting than those formed in our physical families. Our church family comes in times where our, our physical family maybe not might not be there. And uh, so we've got a special bond among one another here. We might not be brothers and sisters by birth, but we are brothers and sisters in Christ, and that connects us together. And with that comes a a real special relationship. 
So that kind of catches you up, gives you an overview of the chapter. But what do you think of large crowds? What do you think of large crowds? Now, these days, probably you don't think much of large crowds because you have to wear a mask and you have to social distance, or you just avoid them altogether. Um, but there are, some, <laughs> there are some large crowds that have gathered before. NCAA football game experienced a very large crowd in, in uh, September of 2016. It's called the Battle of Bristol. And uh, it was over at the Bristol Motor Speedway in uh, Tennessee. The University of Tennessee played Virginia Tech, and uh, almost 157,000 people came to watch that game. Now, to get it in perspective, that's, that's almost, almost the population of Salem, Oregon, coming to watch the game of football. <laughs> or you could put it in better perspective, that's six times the population of Happy Valley. So bring six times the amount here of the population of Happy Valley to that. In the NBA, uh, a, a game played uh, between Chicago Bulls and Atlanta Hawks on March 1998 in the Georgia Dome. And it was played in the Georgia Dome because it was also Michael Jordan's last basketball game. And uh, those in attendance were 62,000, about 62,000 people. Again, and put it in perspective, if you take the population of Springfield, Oregon, you can take them all to that game, and they would be there in attendance. That's three times the, uh, the population of Happy Valley, by the way. In the NFL, the largest attended, attended game was, and, and Neil probably knows about this, was the New York Giants when they played at AT&T Stadium against the Dallas Cowboys. And that was back in September 2009. And at that game, there were 105,000 people at that game. Can you imagine that many people in one place? I, I really can't. Uh, it's hard to think through that. But if you take the population of Hillsboro, put them in that stadium, you've got an idea of what that is. It's incredible, all those people. 3.5 million people attended the largest ever rock concert in 1994. Now, that's just mind-blowing. 3.5. And I've seen pictures of it where the artist is up on the stage and in the photograph is out to the, uh, the crowd and the people go on forever. On forever. But the largest religious crowd on record was when 30 million Hindus gathered to bathe in a river in the hopes of having their sins washed away. Something that is done every 12 years, apparently, in, the, in that religion. But the definition of a, a crowd helps explain why some of us maybe might shy away from them. Definition of a crowd is a large number of people gathered together, typically in a disorganized or unruly way. <laughs> so I probably lost a lot of you right there, disorganized and unruly. A crowd. And some synonyms of, of the word crowd is horde. Mass, multitude, a pack, mob, all these things represent crowd. So when you say, I'm crowded, you are expressing the fact that it's unruly and unorganized and I can't deal with this. Jesus drew a lot of crowds. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark alone, the word crowd appears about 34 different times. Because it's expressed about how, what Jesus was doing and how the crowds came. People wanted to come and see Jesus and experience him. So take a look at Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, where we see the word used a few times here, the word crowd. 
Verse 7, Jesus withdrew in his, with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people, probably crowd, <laughs> came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. So this was something that uh, a bunch of people were coming to, and you probably could imagine how they're pressing in on him and just coming in towards it. And it wasn't just like, oh, let's see what happens. They wanted stuff done. They heard that he, they, that he could heal people. They heard that the sick were being healed, uh, demon-possessed were, were being uh, healed. All these things were happening, and so these people were coming to have something done. At a concert, you go and you experience. Or at a uh, sporting event, you go and you experience. You don't have something done for you. So that's what this crowd was doing, coming up and having something done for them. So they were they wanted something happening. You imagine a few feet or so behind the front of this crowd, they were probably pressing in as well too. They wanted to see and they wanted to have something done. All this was happening in verses 7 through 9. And you probably better understand why he had his disciples get a small boat ready for him so that he could be able to have a little distance from them. But after experiencing intense opposition in the synagogue, Jesus now withdraws with his, his disciples, something he did many different times in the Gospel of Mark. And the crowds pressed in on Jesus, and as a result, kept the disciples from having some quiet time with Christ. It was supposed to be that moment, but, you know, Jesus always wanted, always needed, in, in, in day or night. And people traveled great distances to be with, with Jesus. Some lived nearby, Galilee, but others traveled far away for days and traveled for days like Judea and Jerusalem and Tyre and Sidon. And then some traveled for weeks like Idumea uh, um, and beyond the Jordan be able to get there. Interestingly, uh, that town, Idumea, um, is where the descendants of Esau lived. Now, if you know your history about all this, historically the Edomites were the enemies of Israel and were known to be wicked and rebellious. But there were people traveling from that area coming to see Jesus as well. It's pretty amazing that people that, that far away, both geographically and also spiritually, were drawn to Jesus. And I don't think it's any different today. People are drawn to Jesus no matter what barriers there are, either out of curiosity or out of want. And uh, it happens today. So many people came to Christ that he used a boat as his pulpit, so they wouldn't even they wouldn't crush him. And we see then in verses 10 through 12 that Jesus did two main things when ministering to the crowds. Two main things. He healed many with diseases and he freed many with demons. So you look at verse 10. Now he healed many with diseases. He says, For for he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. They just wanted just a, 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 a small little tap, some kind of touch on Jesus. So they were smothering Jesus in that way. And again, we see this in the phrase, pushing forward. And then verses 11 through 12, he freed many with demons. It says, whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God, but he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. 
So the disease pressed around him and the demonized, they fell down before him. This is a repeated action, which means that they kept on falling down. If you were like an observer of all this, able to get a good bird's eye view of this, can you imagine all that was going on there? It would be a little concerning, a little scary, I think. To me, it would be. Seeing people come on up and they're demon, demon possessed and they're falling down before Jesus and they're getting and falling back down again. And that would be a little creepy looking. And then you got others who are coming forward with all these diseases and everything else trying to touch Jesus. And man, it's something that, you know, a bad movie, Living of the Dead or Dead, I don't know. So those things, zombies coming forward, Jesus or something like that. But you picture this, and Jesus had healed people either of diseases or of being demon-possessed. And so these people wanted that healing. And they're coming forward for that. So he did that. But this shows the power of Christ as those demon-possessed were just dropped down to his feet. When they confessed who he was, he silenced them. He did that for two reasons. First, there was a common belief that the knowledge of one's precise name kind of conferred mastery over that person. So if you knew that person's precise name, you had something on them. You had mastery over them. By stating his title, the demons tried to show that they were superior over him. And that didn't work out so well for them. I can remember as, as a big fourth grader, I had a third grade teacher the year before in elementary school. His name was Mr. Taylor. We knew him as Mr. Taylor. And as I was standing outside of the fourth grade room, being a big fourth grader now and seeing the third grade class passing by, I was like, ha, ha, ha. I knew the teacher's first name. And so I said, hey, Cecil, how's it going, Cecil? And as he was walking his third grade class in a nice little line towards his classroom, he stopped, turned around, motioned the class to remain there, came walking over to me, got right in front of me and says, you will address me as Mr. Taylor. Thank you. And he walked off and was like, okay. I was trying to have mastery over I knew his first name, Cecil. And so I trying to have that. It wasn't right. <laughs> I was put in my place. In the same way, these demon-possessed were falling at Jesus' feet, but then when they were trying to say, you are the Son of God, Jesus was like, no, be quiet. You won't have mastery over me because you, you know these things. The second reason Jesus quieted them was because he didn't want or need testimony from them. <laughs> he didn't want to be associated in any way with those unclean spirits. So we know from Mark chapter 6, verse 34, that Jesus didn't dislike crowds, but rather he had compassion on them. In that verse, Mark chapter 6, verse 34, it says, When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he could see a crowd and not think, oh, all the people. But he looked at the crowd and saw all oh, those people. He had compassion on them. He could see the hurting. He could see the needy. Sometimes we need to have a pair of Jesus glasses on so we can see the same. While he cared for the crowds, his desire was that, was, was that individual people would come to him. He loved that one-on-one -on -one moments with those people. 
We see this also too in Mark chapter 8, verse 34. It says, In calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Personal relationship. Be with me. In our world of social media, it's pretty easy to find friends, easy to be a fan on Facebook, or even get followers on Twitter and Instagram. What we see in this passage is much deeper than a a superficial connection on social media. This is a deep connection. Jesus, Jesus doesn't want you to be a fan, but to become a faithful follower. And that's what we're going to look at today. We can be all a fan of Jesus. Go Jesus, rah, rah, rah. But when it comes down to the difficult times, followers stay with him. Faithful followers stay with him. Jesus wants us to move from the community to the crowd, to the congregation, to the committed, and then to the the core. He wants us to be in process and getting closer and drawing closer to him in an intimate relationship with him. So where would you find yourself on that line? How close do you consider yourself to Jesus and your relationship with him? We need to see movement that goes from that, the community to the crowd, to the congregation, to the committed, to the core, who then go back out again to reach the community and start it all over again. We talked about that in the Sunday school class, in discipleship. We're discipling when you're going to disciple someone, then you, you, it's intended that that person that you're discipling would go ahead and go back and disciple someone else. And then when that discipling process is done with that person, then you go back out and you do the same. And you keep on going, making disciples who make disciples who make disciples and all. So are you a fan or are you a faithful follower of Jesus? I've mentioned Kyle Eidelman before in his book called Not a Fan. Listen to what he says about our relationship with Christ. He says, It may seem that there are many followers of Jesus, but if they are honestly to, de- define, to define the relationship they have with him, I'm not sure it would be accurate to describe them as followers. It seems to me that there is a more suitable word to describe them. They are not followers of Jesus. They are fans of Jesus. My concern is that many of our churches in America have gone from being sanctuaries to becoming stadiums. And every week, all the fans come to the stadium where they cheer for Jesus, but have no interest in truly following him. One of the biggest threats to the church today are fans that call themselves Christians, but aren't actually interested in following Christ. They want to be close enough to Jesus to get all the benefits, but not so close that it requires anything from them. One of the reasons our churches can become fan factories is that we have separated the message of believe from the message follow. And I think that's a tragedy in our churches today. And I think today we can hopefully be on guard with that. And realize that believe and follow come together. As a follower of Jesus, we believe in him. We believe what he will do and can do. And we believe that not only what he can do for us, but we also believe too what he will do through us and use us for his glory. 
In the rest of our passage, we're going to see the process Jesus uses to move people from being fans to faithful followers. In verse, uh, in verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and the crowds came and clamored for him. And in verse 13, we see that he went up on a mountain, called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. This is the calling of the twelve coming up. So hiking up a mountain would remind people of when Moses went up the mountain to select his leaders in Exodus chapter 24. And in Luke chapter 6, verse 12, tells us that Jesus spent the whole night in prayer before he called to him those whom he desired. This just shows the, the importance of extended prayer before making some big decisions. We need to make sure we're, we're prayed up before we get into the, make those big decisions. It's interesting also to note that the way it usually worked was that men would attach themselves to a teacher. It would come from that direction, like John the Baptist's disciples did. But here we see that Jesus deliberately chose and called to him those whom he wanted. He chose his team. <laughs> and notice how quickly they responded. He called, and they came. Wasn't any hesitation. So let's look at the three-part strategy here that Jesus uses to turn fans into faithful followers. Notice in verse 14, it says, And he appointed twelve, whom he also called apostles. The word appointed here means to, to make, which, which shows that his plan is to mold and make us into the messengers he desires us to be. And we need to be moldable in those situations. Be ready to be used by God in whatever way he desires. The use of uh, 12 apostles would clearly communicate that Jesus was, was bridging from the 12 tribes of Israel to something brand new. In, verse, uh, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, it says, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you, have, you who have followed me, will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So he's all about doing a new thing, using a new form to build a new community called the church. So Jesus wants to move you from being a fan to a faithful follower. And here are three key characteristics of faithful followers in verses 14 and 15. One of the keys, the very first thing we are called to do is to spend time with Jesus. Be in the presence of Jesus. Be in the presence of Jesus so that they might be with him. Jesus desires his followers to hang out with him. In a world of, of, of do, Jesus wants us to first be. Just be. When we're with him, we learn how he loves and how he handles people and what his priorities are. And this is the essence of, of Jesus' training program. There are no huge manuals filled with rules or regulations. He's all about us living in relationship with him, being with him. Think about this uh, that is both simple and startling. You are, you are as close to Christ as you want to be. You are as close to Christ as you want to be. It's simple because it makes sense. But it's startling because sometimes we think that there's something keeping us from being close to Christ. You and I must take responsibility for growing in our relationship with Christ. You won't grow 
in discipleship without practicing the disciplines because spiritual growth is intentional. It's not automatic. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 4 says, The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. So are you willing to go deep with Jesus? Are you willing to go deep with, with Jesus? Are you willing to spend time with Him in prayer and reading His Word every day? <laughs> with tools like the Bible app, we have, we have no excuse not to. What's your plan to be in the presence of Jesus and to practice his presence throughout the day? What is your plan to be able to have that forefront in your, in your, in your day, in your life? To see if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. What are you aiming for? When you spend time in the presence of Jesus, people will notice it as well. In Acts chapter 4, verse 13, it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. May it be said of us in the same way. Oh, those guys aren't very educated, but boy, Jesus is very present in their lives. Okay, it's all right. It's all right that you don't know everything. The key thing is that you know Christ. You know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Being with Jesus, that's the first, being in the presence of Jesus, that's the first step here. So we're come to be with Jesus, and second, we're to go and proclaim the gospel to others. Go and proclaim Jesus. If you look at the next phrase of verse 14, it says, and he might send them out to preach. Now, that word preach might be a little obstacle for you. I know it was a little bit in the Sunday school class when we were sharing discipling and how you need to preach God's word. And <laughs> someone said, I don't like that word preach. How about share? I said, okay, share. <laughs> That's fine. It needs to be verbal though. That's, that was the point. But that, might, that he might send them out to preach. The word send them out, make up the root for the word apostle. Because the apostle is, is a sent one. One of the core values of Happy Valley is, is evangelistic conviction. Evangelist, evangelistic conviction. We, where we, we value sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We value that. We value being sent ones. And that, uh, that, that word preach means to act as a herald, to sound forth the message of the king. And what a message we have from our king. But sometimes it's pretty difficult to sound forth the message of the king in a world that is increasingly evil. Where they reject, or they scoff, mock. And there are four ways we can respond to an increasingly evil, evil world. One is to isolate. You probably know that quite well in the last couple of years. At times in church history, the, wor the world was so wicked that some believers retreated to monasteries. I'm out of here. I'm gone. I guess some people from California, Oregon, go to Texas <laughs> or whatever else. Get out. They go somewhere else. They find a place to get away from it all. You've been there before on vacations, right? I need to get away. I need to have some time, some peace and quiet. 
Sometimes you isolate. Another way to respond in an increasingly evil world is you insulate. You insulate. It's not easy to isolate, so some people choose to insulate themselves from the problems and pain of those who don't yet know Christ. And so these people spend almost all their time with other Christians. They insulate themselves with a good core group. And that's all right. That's all right. When they do have conversations about lost people, the words are often uh, judgmental, though. Uh, get a hold of my neighbor who doesn't know Christ. Oh, I couldn't believe what he did yesterday. And you got ears to hear, and they'll, they'll, they'll agree with you. And, oh, yeah, they need, they need Jesus. We need to pray for him. I've heard it said that we have to stop thinking us versus them and move toward us for them. We need to be for them. How can God use us for them? Another way to respond to an increasingly evil world is to imitate. Some people imitate. And unfortunately, this is where most believers end up. When we don't spend time with Jesus, we can end up blending in with those who don't know Jesus. Taking on their characteristics, taking on uh, their ideals, their motivations. This type of person just wants to fit in and ends up caving into the culture. A fourth way to respond to an increasingly evil world, though, is to infiltrate. Infiltrate. This is the heart of Jesus. We must break down barriers and build bridges with those who don't yet know Christ. By being with them and proclaiming the good news to them. But in our increasingly secular society, in the climate of today's culture, it's becoming more difficult to share our faith. If we try to convert somebody, we might be labeled as an extremist or even a bigot who is intolerant and worthy of being canceled. The question is, are you, are you willing to be labeled in such a way for simply sharing Jesus with others? Are you willing to pay the price. One Christian author and pastor who discovered how very infrequent churchgoers share their faith had this to say. He said, The evangelical church can claim to be an evangelistic, evangelistic people, a church on mission, but the behavior betrays their belief. The facts are in, and it is clear, the church has a behavior problem that is fueled by a belief problem. They don't believe it. They don't believe that Jesus can use them. They don't believe that if they share their faith, people will be saved. They don't believe that it's worth it. So how can we grow in our go value? We're supposed to go and proclaim. How can we grow in that? Here's some Simple suggestions, very simple. <laughs> do something. <laughs> do something. Don't just sit there, do something. Begin praying and then start sharing. Begin praying and start sharing. When someone complained about the way D.L. Moody shared his faith, he responded by saying, well, I like the, I like the way I do evangelism better than the way you don't do evangelism. <laughs> do something. Don't just sit there. And then start small. Don't take on something huge. You don't have to. Start small. 
as the weather gets more conducive for being outside, some of the sunny days that we've had these last few days, you can uh, say goodbye to those as the rain comes in soon, but as the weather gets more conducive for being outside, make a renewed effort to get to know your neighbors. Maybe you haven't seen them for a while. I was just in my backyard doing yard work a couple days ago. Actually, it was last weekend. <laughs> Time flies. And uh, as I was there, I noticed a, a chocolate lab Labrador dog coming through around our pool. And, and I was thinking, where did this dog come from? <laughs> and I'm, I'm watching him and uh, find out it was a she. And so I was watching her. And she comes up to me and, and, and she starts wagging her body. And and I, I kid you not, she then put a grin on her face. It was a grin. She showed her teeth. And she's like, Yee! I was like, is this vicious or happy? And she was just wagging her whole body, coming up to me. And I thought, oh, okay. And I caught her tag and I looked at it for her name. And then she ran off. I was like, oh, okay, there she goes. And then my neighbor to the north of us, we hadn't got to know him yet. He moved in a couple months ago. He's been busy doing a lot of different things. There he was, comes over to the fence, and he's checking some things out. And he's going, hey, uh, notice... My dog got out and I said, oh, yeah, that was her. Okay. Yeah, she looks like she comes through your fence right there. And so we were talking about different stuff like that. And I got to talk with him for a little bit, get to know him. But we, that wouldn't have happened if I wasn't outside and doing things. Put yourself in a position where you can get to see people and, and visit with them and talk with them. Start small. Go on walks in your neighborhood. Hang out in the front of your house instead of the backyard. <laughs> you know, for me, it was the backyard, and it happened anyway. Intentionally pour into your family members. Maybe there's some people in your family that you haven't seen for a while, and you contacted for a while. And then use resources. Use resources. There are so many of them at our fingertips, especially online. If you do a search, a Google search on how to share my faith, you will get, that will get you 6.2 billion results in 0.52 seconds. Just like that. Now, of course, you got to filter through with them going, okay, that's not me. <laughs> but it's right there. With technology and information right at our fingertips, really, we don't have any excuse not to have resources. And then celebrate successes. Share with others when you're able to have a gospel conversation. Rejoice when God saves someone. And it's lovely, it'll be wonderful to hear testimonies from you guys on how you are, you are being used by God in someone's life and how God used you to bring that person to Christ. So first, be in the presence of Jesus. Second, go and proclaim Jesus. That leads us to the third element of the, of the Savior's strategy. Use the power of Jesus. <laughs> Use the power of Jesus. When proclaiming the gospel, it's critical to not do so in your own strength and in the abilities, as stated in verse 15, and have authority to drive out demons. The word authority has the idea of having delegated authority, permission granted to use his power. And remember in Acts 1.8, it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This was certainly evident in the early church as seen also in Acts chapter 4, verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. Are we seeing this kind of power today? Are we witnessing that in our lives in some way? If not, 
maybe there's some kind of short circuit somewhere going on between you and the Holy Spirit, between us and the Holy Spirit. And maybe some of you believe that you're not qualified enough to be used by Jesus. Your past might disqualify you, or what you did this last week. Or This is how one pastor put it, though. He said, Jacob was a cheater. Peter had a temper. David had an affair. Noah got drunk. Jonah ran from God. Paul was a murderer. Gideon was insecure. Miriam was a gossip. Martha was a worrier. Thomas was a doubter. Sarah was impatient. Elijah was moody and Moses stuttered. Abraham was old and Lazarus was dead. God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. We need to keep that in mind. No matter what we might think, oh, well, no, Jesus won't use me because of. That's not true. If he's called you, he's going to use you. In verses 16 through 19, we're introduced to the guys he called to join his team. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. What a group. What a group. This, is not a, uh, this list is not without meaning. Don't tune out like many of us do or might do when we're reading through the list of names in the book of Numbers. <laughs> Don't tune out. Here are some observations I think you will find encouraging. Peter. Peter's always first on the four different lists found in the New Testament. His name means rock and is thought of as the leader, even though he failed and abandoned Jesus. James and John are the next two. And along with Peter, they make up the inner circle. They are given the name Sons of Thunder. That was either a compliment because they had booming voices that were good for preaching. More likely, it referred to their impulsiveness when they later wanted to call down fire from heaven on the Samaritans in Luke chapter 9, verse 54. They were also prone to selfishness, as seen in Mark chapter 10, when they were positioning for some power slots in Jesus' group. While we know a lot about the first three and a little bit, about, a little bit more about the, the next three, we don't know much at all about half of them. They were just ordinary guys who were insignificant and imperfect. Good news for us. <laughs> we don't have to be perfect. We don't have to be significant. We just have to be willing. This was a motley crew made up of misfits. It's fair to say that none of them would have been voted as most likely to succeed by their yearbook uh, committees. But there are no rabbis or professional theologians or refined guys from Jerusalem on the list. Ordinary men. They were all young 20-something men. This is a good reminder for us older guys to make sure that uh, we're pouring into the next generation. We're not going to be able to do it all the time. And at one point, sometime, someone else is going to have to take that baton. Who is it going to be? And many of the names are listed in pairs, which is a precursor to how Jesus later will send them out two by two on missionary journeys, as seen in Mark chapter 6. 
There are pairs of brothers on the list. And this reminds us of the importance of family connections and the intentionality of, of sibling serving, not sibling rivalry. If you have a sibling, have you ever thought about how you can serve together? What would that look like? Now we have a great example in the sound booth above us here with two sisters serving together. There was natural tension on this team. And there were four foul-smelling fishermen, a doubter and a betrayer huddled up with Jesus. There was Matthew, the tax collector, who worked for Rome, and Simon, the zealot, who hated Rome. Can you imagine the discussion around those circles when things came up? Topics of the day. Imagine what the resumes of the 12 disciples would have sounded like to a search firm. Dear sir, most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They do not have the team concept. We would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience and managerial ability and proven capability. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel that it is our duty to tell you that Matthew has been back blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus definitely have radical leanings. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He is a man of ability and resourcefulness has a keen business mind and has contacts in high places. He is highly motivated, ambitious, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. All the other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you every success in your new venture. It wouldn't turn out well. <laughs> On paper, you look at it and you go, how did this work? But Jesus brought together people. And when he brings people together, when he calls them to a certain task, a specific ministry, a work, he's going to equip them. He's going to qualify them. And those people will do God's work. If Jesus can use a ragtag team like this to turn the world upside down, can't he use you and me <laughs> the same way? And he will if we fully surrender to him. Jesus doesn't want you to be a fan, but to become a faithful follower. A legend recounts what happened when Jesus returned to heaven after his time on earth. The angel Gabriel approached him and said, Master, you must have suffered terribly for, for men down there. I did, Jesus replied. And, continued Gabriel, do, you, do they know all about how you loved them and what you did for them? Oh, no, said Jesus, not yet. Right now, only a few people in Galilee know. Gabriel was perplexed and questioned, well, then what have you done to let everyone know about your love for them? And Jesus said, oh, I've, I've asked Peter, James, John, and a few of my friends to tell other people about me. Those who are, who are told will in turn tell others, and my story will spread to the farthest reaches of the globe. Ultimately, all of, my, of mankind will hear about my life and what I've done. And Gabriel frowned, looked rather skeptical. He knew full well what humans were made of. <laughs> yes, he said, but what if Peter and James and John grow weary? What if the people who come after them forget? What if 
way down in the 21st century, people just don't tell others about you. What then? Haven't you, haven't you made any other plans? And Jesus answered, I haven't made any other plans. I'm counting on them. And 20 centuries later, he still has no other plan. He is counting on us. And fans will never accomplish this. Only faithful followers will. So are you a fan or a faithful follower? I'm going to ask Don and Annie, come on up. You got to lead us in the last few songs here. But let me remind you that men and women are his method. That is his method. You and me, his method. His plan is people like you and like me to get the job done. So be in the presence of Jesus. Go and proclaim Jesus and use the power of Jesus. And doing those things that will move you from just a fan of Jesus to a faithful follower of him. When Jesus considers a crowd like this, he is calling individuals to move from being fans to faithful followers. Are you ready to follow? In the first song that we're going to sing, I trust it could be a prayer for you. And as we sing, as the deer, I pray that it will be an opportunity for you to recommit your relationship to him in a way where, yes, God, you can use me. Help me to be a faithful follower. And that the words of that song will be your prayer as well.